Education is one of the fundamental activities of a healthy society. But education is much more than just transferring information from, from, from the, the jug of water into the empty glass, the, the teacher who knows everything into the pupil who knows nothing. Education is more than information, for it involves and includes teaching how to think, how to process information, as well as how to be rightly sceptical about things while at the same time still trusting people. And education is more than the transfer of information, for it involves the relationship between humans, the modelling of how to live, the development of the inquiring mind in the teacher as well as in the student. The simple litmus test of a good teacher is to ask, what do you teach? If they answer chemistry, French, maths, you know they're no good. If they say students children, high schoolers, adults, there is a possibility that they're good teachers. Because you don't teach a subject, you teach people. And the people is the element of it that is really important. And we don't just learn from our teachers. Following our teachers is part of the process of education. This was the case with the crowds and the disciples listening to Jesus. Many thousands heard the words of Jesus, but very few understood and even fewer followed. And even among the disciples themselves, there was very little understanding of what Jesus was talking about until well and truly after the events on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came and opened their minds to finally grasp what it was all about. The greatest teacher and preacher of all time had very few people who actually understood what he was talking about and followed him or accepted or understood his message, which is an encouragement to all teachers and preachers. You can't get better than Jesus and he didn't succeed. So what hope have we got in one sense? Fancy being there when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, which we come to conclude this week. We can imagine that it would have been an overwhelming experience of the great powerful sermon biting deeply into our hearts and conscience, transforming our lives and our actions. But the majority of the people who heard it rejected what was said and the disciples for whom it was really directed didn't understand it. And I guess if we were there, we would have been in the crowd or amongst the disciples and not got the point. Jesus finished the sermon with a warning about hearing these words of mine as he talks about them in verse four and verse uh, in verse twenty four and verse twenty seven of chapter seven. Everyone who hears these words of mine, everyone who hears these words of mine, a warning about hearing these words of mine and not putting them into action. Uh, people would hear him speak speaks the very words of life and the very words of eternity itself. Hear them with their ears from this greatest of teachers. Hear the very word of God, speak the word of God, and yet not gain any wisdom from them. It's astonishing, isn't it? And so he concludes his sermon with this great warning about listening properly to his words. 
In one sense, the whole sermon has been a warning, a warning to the disciples that success in fishing for men is not found in great crowds, but it's found in changed hearts. And that their ministry doesn't place them in the kingdom of heaven, but their relationship with God places them in the kingdom of heaven. A relationship that will be seen, must be seen, shall be seen in their changed lifestyle. Their new supernatural lifestyle where people would see their good works and give praise not to them but to their Father in heaven because clearly their Father in heaven has touched them and changed them. Warning them that this changed lifestyle would make them unpopular, hated, even persecuted. For they would stand out like salt and like light and like a city on the hill that couldn't be hidden. So they will stand out as so different to the rest of the community around about them that the community will not like them. Jesus had given the terrible warning to the disciples, the would-be prophets and teachers of the kingdom of heaven. In the passage we've just read in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons? And I will declare to them, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And now he talks to the people who are hearing these words of mine, these words about acceptance in the kingdom of heaven and rejection from the presence of God. And he challenges his listeners to be like the wise man who builds upon the rock. For the person who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who builds upon his house upon a rock, verse 24. His true wisdom, not only to hear, but also to do the words of Jesus. Here is the true disciple of Jesus, the one who not only hears, but also does what he says. Uh, lest we miss the point, Jesus contrasts the wise man with the foolish man in verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. For the foolish man also hears the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the foolish man is like the passive learner. Being passive in our learning practice means that we don't actually learn properly. You think back to the nature of what you have learnt, the importance the teachers had in your school days to get you to write it up later, to put it into practice, the importance of the medical fraternity as they teach. You watch one, you do one, then you teach one. That's how they learn the process. If the active learner learns. And you think back to the teacher that you loved most, the teacher who taught you the most, the teacher who actually fired your brain. For some of us, we didn't have such an experience. But for those of us who did, think back to who that teacher was. And it had to do with relationship, didn't it? It had to do with the person who actually cared for you, that you got the sense of them caring for you, the one who actually remembered your name. And it was often a person who was eccentric, who taught outside the curriculum, who showed you things that you had never thought of, who took you to new worlds. Good teaching is good relationship. Good learning 
is active listening. For as long as the teacher teaches but the student doesn't do anything, then what goes in one ear goes out the other. That's when the student does, when the student puts into practice, then we find what the teacher says sticks in the brain. Then the teacher grows in understanding and the, and the student grows in understanding. And so Jesus is saying here in verse 26, the one who hears my word but doesn't do it is the foolish man. The one who hears my word and does do it is the wise man. They both hear the word, it's exactly the same. It's what they do with the word they hear that is different. The one who doesn't do it, the one who does do it, is the difference between the wise and the foolish. The foolish man doesn't do them, he only hears, he only listens, doesn't do. He doesn't act upon what he hears. He doesn't put it into operation in his life. He thinks he hears, but in fact, he's forgotten the words before he's got home that afternoon. But they're just words that sound, sounds that travel on the breeze in the mountain air like the mists that appear in the morning and disappear as the sun comes out. So are the words of Jesus to those who hear them, but don't ever put them into practice. Well, there are so many foolish people in our city of Sydney, aren't there, who think they know what Jesus taught, but the simplest tests will show they have no idea because they've never been putting the teaching into practice. Over the years, people have told me that they, they don't bother with church and with all the disputes of theology. They just simply follow the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the small costs you have to bear as a clergyman that you get told these silly things by people and have to smile nicely back to them and be polite to them. But it's really silly. Whenever they say, I just follow the Sermon on the Mount, I've learnt to ask them about the sermon and which parts in particular they like. It's extraordinary the things they say at that point, but it rarely bears any relationship to the Sermon on the Mount. Generally, they don't know any part of it. They then go to that wonderful castle explanation. I just like the vibe of it. Don't bother with the details of what actually it says. It's just the vibe of what I imagine Jesus would have said if he'd taken my sermon and preached that instead of his. Because if you don't put the sermon into practice, you will soon forget it and you'll have no idea about what Jesus was saying. Even if you've heard it, even if you've heard a series of Bible studies on it by coming here on a Tuesday. But even if people do remember the contents of the sermon, they would still be foolish not to follow it. For the wisdom and the foolishness lies in the outcomes. The outcomes of the two houses that the men built. The wise man's house, built upon the rock, survives the rains and the floods and the winds and the foolish man's house built upon the sand collapses in utter devastation. When we build our houses, we don't build them only to survive the good days and the nice weather. We know that bad weather comes. We know the inevitability of storms and floods and so if we're wise, we build our homes to survive the worst of the bad times. 
They didn't have the exact, I understand, mechanics and mathematics of engineering worked out when they built this cathedral. And so the pillars are actually bigger and stronger than they need to be. That's good, isn't it? For the choice of making them thinner and weaker than they need to be is really daft, isn't it? If in doubt, build as strong as you can. Don't build as weak as you can because sometimes, somewhere, a great storm is going to come. That's an inevitability. Build for the big storm that's coming. Don't build for the nice days when everything's going to be all right because you're building a house that lasts. Jesus had just told the disciples of the dreadful day of judgment when many would come saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name, only to hear the voice of Jesus declare to them, as I told you last week, the worst verse in the Bible that I can think of, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is the word, that is the sentence you don't want to hear on the last day. Whatever else you might or may not hear on the last day, that is not the verse that you want to hear said to you or to anybody standing near you, do you? Everyone then, says Jesus, and the word then is the word therefore, everyone therefore, because of this storm that is coming, because there is a day of judgment coming, be wise. You know that storms are coming in Sydney. Sydney has stormy weather. When you build your house, build it wisely. You know the day of judgment is coming. You know one day you'll die and face the Almighty. Then be wise. Do not only listen to what I say, but also put what you hear into action. For many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, but they will not enter the kingdom of heaven on that occasion. It's only the one who does the will of my Father. But I preach sermons for you. I exorcise. Doesn't matter. Did you do the will of my Father? That's what matters. Therefore, because there is a day when you will give answer to me, because your house, your life will one day be judged by me, because that great storm of life is coming, therefore... Build wisely upon what I say by putting my words into action. But of course the crowds. The crowds didn't listen to Jesus. We read in verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, back in chapter 5, if you just turn back a couple of pages... Jesus was teaching his disciples. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, referred to at the end of chapter 4, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. But it was not the secret teaching of Jesus to his disciples. It was not like in the upper room where only the disciples were present on the last night before on the night he was betrayed and before he was crucified. This was a teaching he gave to his disciples publicly out in the open in front of the crowds on the mountain.
for all who climbed up to hear more of Jesus could listen in to what Jesus was saying to his disciples. And the crowds who came to listen in to hear his teaching to his disciples heard him all right. There was no failure in the amplifying system. There was no, they heard him and there was no shortage of people hearing him. But they didn't listen to what he had to say about being wise men. For they didn't do what he told them. They listened like foolish men, even to this last warning bit, not doing what he said. For you'll notice, instead of hearkening to what he said, they were astonished at his teaching. Astonishment is not belief. It's not obedience. Astonishment is amazement in disbelief. They can't believe that he says such things. See, the word is used several times in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew chapter 13, we read, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get all this, this wisdom and these mighty works? Or in chapter 19, verse 25, when the disciples heard him, heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, then who can be saved? See, Jesus said, the rich can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Easier for a, 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 a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples don't believe that. They can't believe that. They say, well, then who can be saved? You see, their astonishment is their unbelief at such a thing. You mustn't be astonished at the teaching of Jesus you must be convinced of the teaching of Jesus and put his words into practice. That's what he calls upon us to do. Not to say, oh, gee, that can't be right. But you can also see that the crowds didn't listen because of their attitude to their scribes. For notice in verse 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, notice how they contrasted Jesus to the scribes. But you'll see the contrast was really between Jesus and their scribes. They still owned the scribes. The people were choosing to stick to their scribes rather than follow this man who speaks without footnotes, this man who speaks without authority. Not like the learned scribes, not like the learned ones who would always be quoting all the other authorities. Some years ago, a Jewish friend of mine became a Christian and we did a Bible study down at the local rabbi's office because the thing that had persuaded her to become a Christian was the understanding of Isaiah chapter 53. For there, clearly written hundreds of years before Jesus, was such a description of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and an explanation of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ that she felt she couldn't really be believing the Old Testament without believing what it predicted and what it predicted was the coming of the Lord Jesus. So the rabbi took us through a study of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And over a course of an hour or so, he outlined to us, I think it was 18, I can't remember exactly the number now, 18 different ways of understanding the suffering servant. 18 different people that could have been the suffering servant. It could have been Moses, it could have been Elijah, it could have been, he even included it could have been Jesus. And in each one of them he said, well, Rabbi so-and-so, so-and-so, he said it's Moses. 
because he knew and Rabbi so and so so he says it's it's Elijah and Rabbi so and so so and so he he says it's Isaiah and Rabbi and at the end of it he hadn't told us who the suffering servant was and so we asked him well then who do you think oh it's not for me to say you know all these great rabbis they've said I mean who am I to, to challenge what the rabbis say and so he had no authority other than the authority of the rabbis who all contradicted each other. But he wouldn't say what Isaiah was saying because you only quote the rabbis. Rabbinic teaching is of that character. It can quote everybody else but ultimately not God. My Jewish friend was very unconvinced by this, especially when we said, but Jesus is the one that fits most closely. Don't you see that? And argued the point with the rabbi. To which he said, well, even if what you're saying is true, and I can see it, the logic of what you're saying, it doesn't matter because this part of Isaiah 53 was written later. It wasn't written by Isaiah. It's been shoved in later by, from Christian and Babylonian ideas. And so it's not really part of the original to which there is no evidence. Every copy of Isaiah we've got has got chapter 53 in it. And we asked how he knows that. And it was because it doesn't fit with his view of what Judaism believed anyway. And so the whole evening was an incredible waste of time. Well, it wasn't. It confirmed our Christian friend in the fact that she had understood Isaiah properly. But it was very sad to see a rabbi teaching as rabbis teach. Not like Jesus, with authority. But the authority is astonishing in a right sense as well as in a wrong sense. Because the art of listening to Jesus is to recognise his authority. He is the one to whom on the last day, the great day of judgment, he is the one to whom we have to give account. Ponder those words back there in verse 21, 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, any prophet could say that, really, couldn't they? Not everybody who calls me teacher, teacher, but those who keep the will of my Father in heaven, although it's a distinctive my Father, not just our Father. But look at verse 22. On that day, Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I, who is it that you are going to give answer to on the last day? It's God that you're going to give answer to on the last day. It's God who is the judge of all the world. But then suddenly it turns out not to be God but Jesus to whom you are going to give answer. Who is this man who thinks that on the last day you have to square off with him to enter the kingdom of heaven? Do you see the implicit claim that Jesus is making in these verses? He is claiming to be the judge of all the world. On the great day of judgment, he is the one who determines people's eternal destination. He is the judge and saviour of all mankind. He is the judge of the living and the dead. If you ignore his words, you either reject him or are profoundly foolish. 
and to ignore his words, maybe to reject him, to say, no, no, he's not the judge of all the earth. He's not my judge. He's not my ruler. I won't have to give answer to him. He's going to die just like I'm going to die. He's going to be mouldering in a grave just like I'm going to be mouldering in a grave. It's not true, Jesus. You are not the judge of all the earth. It's an arrogant nonsense to think you're the judge of all the earth. You see why I think that people who tell me they just follow the Sermon on the Mount don't know what they're talking about? Because they hardly ever think that the Sermon on the Mount teaches that Jesus is their judge at eternal life. So how they treat Jesus is whether they're going to go to heaven or hell. Hardly anybody who tells me they just follow the Sermon on the Mount ever knows that verse is there in the Sermon on the Mount. That claim of Jesus is there in the Sermon on the Mount. But that's who he's claiming to be. And to reject him, well, if he's not the judge of all the earth, that's a very sensible thing to do. But if he is the judge of all the world, then that's a very foolish thing to do. And to say, I follow the words of Jesus, I've heard him teach, but not to follow them, not to do them, is really foolish, isn't it? To ignore his words may be foolishness, for when we think we've heard him, we think that when the storms come, we will be able to say, call him Lord. We think that we'll be able to say, well, I was there on the mountain. Don't you remember? I was in the fourth row, fifth from the left. Sure, you saw me there on that occasion, Jesus. Remember, I was there. We think we'll be able to say to the Lord Jesus on the last day, I've read the Bible. I went to Sunday school. I went to Christian camps. I attended the cathedral. I even went to the lunchtime Bible studies. I even endured Philip Jensen. Surely there must be a place for me. None of these things are of any consequence, really, are they? I preached in your names. I even told other people to preach in your names. I even stood with Andrew Lim out in the mornings inviting people to Bible study. A good and right and noble thing to do. But he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. To ignore his word, especially his words about the day of judgment, is foolishness itself. For he tells us who will enter the kingdom of heaven and who will be surprised by their failure to enter on that great day. And he assures us the great day is coming and he claims that he is going to be at the very centre of it when it does. So those who are wise will hear what he has to say and do something about it. And those who are foolish will hear what he has to say and do nothing about it. I mean, you see the foolishness of that? Unless you're saying, yeah, no, Jesus, you're wrong. It's really profoundly foolish. If Jesus is God, then he must be your God. If Jesus is the saviour of the world, he must be your saviour. If Jesus is the judge of all the world, he will be your judge. Make him your saviour, make him your God before you ever meet him as your judge. So what about you? See, who do you think Jesus is is critically important. He claimed to be the judge of all the earth. Furthermore, as we go on in Matthew's Gospel, we will see, of course, 
He died to bear our judgment. He rose again to be our ruler, not only in this age, but the age to come. Who do you think Jesus is? Is one of the most profound, important questions you ever can answer. Do you think that Jesus was a great teacher? Well, then, have you listened to his teaching? Well, this is, again, one of my problems in Sydney. Whenever we've stood out in George Street asking people who do they think Jesus is, a great teacher is a very common answer. If you're ever rude enough to ask the next question, you see the foolishness of Sydney siders. Have you ever read any of his teaching? Uh, no, I haven't got time. I'm watching television tonight. He's a great teacher, but you don't listen to his teachings. Foolish more is, he's a great teacher, I do listen to his teachings, but I never put them into practice. It's like our Muslim friends, who always say Jesus is the great prophet. Whom? Muhammad's greater, but you know, there's all the prophets leading up to Jesus and then Muhammad. And you say, well, that's wonderful. Have you paid any attention to the prophecies of Jesus? Because Jesus prophesied his death, which you deny ever happening. If he's a great prophet, why don't you pay attention to his prophecies? They don't, of course. They never pay attention to his prophecies. Why do you call him a great prophet if you're not going to listen to his prophecies? It's a nonsense. It's a foolishness. So do you think Jesus is a great teacher? Well, then listen. Are you following him? Are you only hearing what he says or are you putting it into practice? For many other fools who claim he's a great teacher while ignoring his teaching. So what about you? Are you truly listening and learning from the teacher? Now I know you hear at lunchtime, Bible says, and good on you, well done. I know it takes effort to make sure that you're here and, and, and I try and finish so that you can get back to work and the rest on time. And so, well done that you make the effort. Keep inviting people, keep coming, keep listening. But from this passage, I need to warn you, don't I, that coming and listening is not enough. In fact, coming and listening and doing nothing about it is really foolish. <laughs> That's a profound waste of time. If you're going to come and listen, come and listen in order to do and so for some of us, that means a turning back to listen more acutely than we ever have before. For some of us, that requires a change in life, in the way we listen actively rather than just passively and ignoring what's being said. But all of us, it requires constantly, prayerfully turning to the Word of God, reading what God says, and then working out what to do about it, what changes to make in our life, and then doing it putting it into practice. Look at the back of the outline, not at the prayer down the bottom this time, but up the top. There are three boxes up there at the top which we have on every week just to help you. They're not there just for the need to fill in blank paper. They're there to help you. What new things have I learned from this talk? What old truths have I been reminded of? Number three, what response do I need to make? A good active learner We'll take that home and tonight, at bedtime, sit down and remember the talk. Look at the notes you may have taken during this talk, but remember the talk and think out number three and pray about it. Not just today, but every week. Hey, you don't have to do it that way. There's other ways of doing it, but that's what they're for, so as to help you. That little simple exercise of not just saying, oh yeah, I went to Bible today, it was really good. Can't quite remember what it was about now, but it was good, I'll go again next week. 
Now, I come here so as to hear what God says. If I come here to hear what God says, that's because I want to put into practice what God says. And that's the exercise at the top of the sheet, just to help you put into practice so that you won't be foolish learners and listeners. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, especially from your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that you would make us doers of your word, not hearers only deceiving ourselves, that our lives may be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we might know what pleases you. We might know your good and perfect will. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.